This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I tell you about 10 psychological theories and cognitive biases that you should know and love. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak. Rich, what's happening, my man? I just got done running into town to buy a sweet feed for my horses, brother. That's what I'm doing. You know, maybe we should think of some more interesting ways to open this show than me just every time saying, Rich, what's up? Uh, I'm I feel like I'm trying to find interesting ways to ask that question, and it's uh, <laughs> it's just not happening. Yeah, no, I, yeah, we probably should. Um, I don't know what it would sound like, but if, hey, if you're a listener and you got some ideas, go ahead and send them to Rich at AcrossThePeak dot com. How about that? Absolutely, man. Also, this is a good time to remind our listeners if this is your first time listening to the show. Go ahead and click on the show there in uh, on your podcast app and go ahead and subscribe to us so you don't miss an episode. Um, not really much of an intro on this one because I am not a whole lot of screwing around. I'm very excited to get into this topic, and I know this is a thing that you're very excited about too. What are we talking about today? So one of the things that uh, the reason that I wanted to do this topic is because I see people fall victim to, to certain cognitive biases that they don't even really realize that they have. Now, not everything that you and I are going to discuss today is going to be a cognitive bias per like the DSM manual or something like that. But there are certain little uh, pitfalls that people can fall into, these little psychological blind spots, if you will. And we just want to let people know that they're out there and how to avoid them. So, and one of the first ones that really isn't even on the it's not even in the top 10 that we wanted to discuss, but it's this self-serving bias, and I'm guilty of it, and you are, and probably our listeners are, and that is the belief that you are immune to the forces that influence the rest of humanity. Yeah, this is a, this is a big one, and I, I see this play out, I, I see the possibility for it to play out in any number of places, and I definitely see it play out on myself. I see, uh, you know, I, I see... People like my parents who in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s would have called uh, at the time Donald Trump just a, you know, a a New York elite liberal womanizing uh, uh, whatever. Uh, But they think they've made an independent decision, a 100 percent independent decision that he is now a God fearing Christian and. Whatever you think about him, about President Trump, I'm I'm not trying to uh, to chum that water, but I contend that that decision was probably made for them by some sort of advertising, some sort of strategic advertising campaign, and they don't recognize that because they fully believe they are unsusceptible to advertising, and the self-serving bias is is it's imperative that you understand this exists and acknowledge that it can happen to you too. And, and, 
you know, people are like, oh, that, that commercial doesn't affect me. Well, that's not the way commercials work. You typically don't see a bounty paper towels commercial and run out to buy bounty paper towels right then. What does happen is you see that commercial over and over and over again for years, and one day you're in the grocery store and your domestic partner has not, you know you're out of paper towels and you're doing the shopping for whatever reason, and you've had that commercial thrown at you your entire life or maybe maybe it's your first time away from home or whatever and you walk down that paper towel aisle not knowing anything about the merits of any of them and you pick up the bounty paper towels that that's how that works that we're all susceptible to it i'm susceptible to it rich you're susceptible to it we have to recognize this inherent bias and acknowledge it to be able to even have a hope of overcoming the rest of these yeah, it's like one year I did a great job with my garden or so. I th- I give my credit for it. Like, man, Rich, you, you killed it. Man. What a great garden. Look at everything. You were so smart to get those bees because they're pollinating the your garden. And then the next year, maybe the garden doesn't do well. And I go, oh, you know what? This is that damn plant food I'm I'm using on there. It's not my fault. It's this crappy plant food. And that's that's absolutely horseshit. And and I have a cousin who I've helped with his business several times, and he'll come up with these harebrained ideas, and I'll say, well, that doesn't work with the way we motivate other people to do things. And he's like, well, you know, I think it'll work. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going to work here because the laws of human psychology, for some reason, don't exist on these four acres we're standing on. You know what I mean? It's like, no, you're you're falling victim to a self-serving bias right now. Yep. We But that that's that's not even one we're gonna talk about today. <laughs> I mean really it's just like it's a freebie, man. We're gonna throw that out there and just let you know that if you cannot understand this one and you can't appreciate it, then you're not gonna be able to deal with any of the other ones we're gonna talk about today. I I feel like we have to set the table with that though. I feel like we have to lay the groundwork and and that is the stepping stone to being able to, and, and let's be clear, Rich, but I started to say being able to overcome these, none of us are going to overcome all of these com- completely, but to be able to recognize some of these in action, or maybe to be able to use some of these to our benefit, it's imperative that you understand that self-serving bias and understand that most of us just disregard, like, if you don't acknowledge that that exists, you're just going to blow us off for everything else we're about to say here, and and that's probably the least of your worries. Uh, what you should worry about is blowing off uh, that person that comes at you with one of these other techniques or, or blowing off your own susceptibility to it. Exactly. Precisely. So with that being said, man, if you don't acknowledge that you, are, that you may potentially have a self-serving bias then you can shut this podcast off right now. But if you're still here, you're still hanging in there, uh, hold on, because I think we got a real good show lined up for you today. So where do you want to start at? Uh, let's start uh, with the foot-in-the-door technique. That's a great place. Uh, foot-in-the-door technique, man, it's been around, it's been, been around uh, since humans walked the earth, but it's probably recognized first in 1966, and it assumes that agreeing to a small request will increase the likelihood of agreeing to a second, often larger request. So basically, initially, someone will make a small request, and then once that person agrees, okay, yeah, I'll do it, they find it more difficult to refuse the bigger one. And in reality, 
that's what that person is trying to do. And we see this play out with salesmen and stuff like that all the time, right? Well, I think that was used as a as kind of a literal technique with uh, like door to door salesmen, right? Yes, like, a, ma'am, can I ask you a couple of survey questions? You're like, hey, I sure. What's the harm in it? And the next thing you know, would it be okay if I come in and show you this so that you'll be able to more, you know, show you my Kirby vacuum cleaner so that you'll be able to answer these survey requests? And that's part of it, you know. It's that the principle of consistency, and what that means is. As long as the request is consistent with or in similar nature to the original small request, then that technique's going to work. But we all know, even though I'm like, well, you know what? In order to answer this marketing survey, gosh, I probably need to come in so you can give me some good answers. Would that be okay? And she's like, well, I I guess it has something to do with the the first thing the guy wanted. But in reality, I just want to get inside your house and show you this damn vacuum. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And it, it is almost a literal foot in the door in that case. And you see this, uh, you see this with dating. Uh, hey, uh, do you mind if I sit down beside you? Hey, uh, it's a little loud in here. Let's go outside. Hey, um, let's go to this other place. Hey, let's go to my place. Um, it, once you've started that ball of yeses rolling, it becomes, it, it becomes harder for that other party. And I'm not going to say harder. They become less inclined to start saying no all of a sudden. Yeah, that's exactly right, which which kind of leads into this. The, there's two things. I mean, this isn't number two, but this is also something I wanted to talk about because if you, if you understand the foot in the door, you can conceptually understand what Justin and I are talking about. Let's talk about door in the face, right? And that's where a refusing a large request up front increases the likelihood of agreeing to that second smaller request later on. And... um So initially, you're going to make a big request, which a person can be expected to refuse. You know they're going to refuse it. It's okay, because what you want to accomplish is you want them to say yes to the smaller request, right? Yep. And uh, let me tell you, I use this one uh, pretty frequently, and uh, it it, it works. I I will tell you it works. And uh, an example of that would be going to your boss when let's say you want a $5 an hour raise, you go to your boss and say, Hey boss, I want a $10 an hour raise. And he's going to say, are you crazy? That's 75% of your hourly rate. And you say, okay, how about a, how, how about a $5 raise? He is much more likely to say yes to that $5 raise after he's told, you no to that, to that much bigger request, right? That's absolutely right. And when you look at the uh, peer-reviewed literature on, on the door-in-the-face technique, it's been found that the door-in-the-face technique produces higher levels of compliance only when the same person makes the request, and, that, and the requests are similar in nature. So if you would have went and asked for $10, and he would have told you no to your face, you walk out, and then let's say I'm your intermediate boss, and I go in for you on your behalf and go, look, can Justin have, let's just call it a $5-an-hour raise. Well, it resets the clock because now he can say no to me. It only works because he said no to you and he feels bad about it. So he's, he'll he's probably say yes to you because he feels like he owes you a yes at that point. Is that the way you understand it? Yeah, that's step, uh, that aligns perfectly with the way I understand the door in the face technique. Also, uh, it, it has to be a similar request, right? It does have to be a similar request. And that, that's why I think uh, the example you use, Justin, of the, the pay raise works well with this because uh, one of the things that the, the techniques works do in, do in part because as human beings were 
we were uh, social animals, right? And we believe in the theory of reciprocity, or I think it's often called um, altruistic reciprocity or something like that. Humans uh, were hardwired for that reciprocal altruism. Evolutionary biology has made us that way so that when us, an organism, acts in a manner that temporarily reduces its own uh, fitness while increasing the fitness of another, there's an expectation that that is that that they're going to get something out of it, right? If I give you uh, an olive branch, you're going to give me a fig leaf. If I give you a banana, you're going to give me an orange. There's some tit for tat going on there. So, I, that's why I just can't feel like I'm constantly saying, "No, we're not going to leave this bar." No, you can't put your hand on my knee. No, I won't get in the cab with you or the Uber with you, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, like the dating one is maybe kind of a creepy, uh, a creepy example to use, but I, I think I, I absolutely think people should know and use these when it comes to business, when it comes to dealing with basically any kind of conflict. And when I say conflict, I don't mean fistfights. I mean any kind of, um, you know, a, a conflict between you and your landlord, a disagreement about any kind of disagreement or dispute. These are awesome things to know for you to recognize when they're being used on you. And you can be like, wait, he's using, he's totally just using the door in the face technique. Um, I, I'm not going to fall prey to that. Um, versus, you also have the ability to, when your landlord comes complaining about something, say, well, how about you do this? No, okay, well, how about you do that? Uh, much more likely to get results by using some some good, sound psychological principles. Well, I think it. I think the dating one it, it is creepy as hell. But I would also say, if the to the female listener that's on here right now, understand that some dude at some point may use this against you. You know what I'm saying? That they could make that large request only because they want to get your your phone number or find out where you live or whatever. And I don't want you to feel. And I have a daughter, right? And thank God she's got a degree in psychology and. And, and matter of fact, she works for the state as a counselor. So uh, she's very aware of these things and when they're being used uh, on her. So that's that's the first two we wanted to talk about, the foot in the door technique and the door in the face. Anything else to say on that before we move to the next one? I think we're good on those, man. Okay, bro. Uh, confirmation bias is another one that I want to talk about. This is a huge one, and it's the tendency to interpret new evidence as some sort of confirmation for one's own existing beliefs or theories. Like if, if I got, if I read an article that um, somebody's dog mauled a little child and I read that it was a pit bull and I was already scared of pit bulls. Well, well, there you go. Look, you can't trust pit bulls. I'm glad our apartment complex doesn't allow pit bulls here because they're dangerous, right? Yep. Uh, another example, and I'm probably giving away way too much about when we were actually recording this. We're recording this a few weeks before it's actually going to be out. But right now, Rich, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's kind of a viral photograph of President Trump and uh, German ch- Chancellor Angela Merkel. And she's leaning over the table uh, talking to him, and he's sitting down uh, kind of away from the table with his arms folded. Have you seen that photograph? Oh, yeah, I've seen it. And everybody immediately jumps to their own conclusions, uh, their own preconceived conclusions. Uh, if you're predisposed to be very supportive of President Trump, you're saying, yes, that's a strong leader. That's what a strong leader looks like. He's not taking no shit from nobody. 
if you're predisposed to be not very supportive of President Trump, you're saying, oh, look at him. He's he's like a petulant child with his arms folded. You're basically just confirming what you already think. And, and it's I find it fascinating that two diametrically opposed sides can arrive at two diametrically opposed opinions about the exact same information. And that's what I was going to say, you know, uh, as a former investigator in the Marine Corps, I looked at it like, you know, we do in shooting. I need a good, tight, three-shot group before I start developing any any opinions. I'll try to keep my mind as open as possible until the evidence starts leading me down a different path. Because if not, we all go into situations with our own biases, you know. What hypothesis do I have about this situation? And let's acknowledge what it is, and let's sit it over here. Let's write it down and say, I'll give you a great example. Uh, one time, there was a Marine that I, I didn't like. I thought he was a, a, matter of fact, I called him a fucking scumbag. Um, and the colonel that appointed me as the investigating officer said, I want you to go to blank in Florida and investigate Gunnery Sergeant Smith, we'll call him. And I said, Roger that, sir. Happy to do it. Uh, you need to understand, going into this, I have a bias against this Marine. I think he's a scumbag because I worked with him before at another command. He's like, very well. Can you set that prosecutory mindset aside and give me a good, thorough, unbiased investigation? I said, absolutely. I'll let the evidence will be what it is. So I, th- I think that it's important to acknowledge that before you start spouting off your opinions to somebody else, you know. I already didn't like Trump, so I look at this photo and it tells me X. Or I voted for the guy, I think he's doing a great job, and I think this photo shows why he's doing a great job. Yeah, and and most people are making very strong judgments about that photo, having literally zero idea what is actually happening in that moment, which, which... Actually, that drives me a little bit crazy. I have a harder time just looking at that intellectually and saying, oh, that's neat. That drives me a little bit crazy that people don't have a clue what's going on, uh, yet they pretend to to be political scholars and, and interpret exactly what that means. Um, man, there's plenty of... We could talk about confirmation bias a lot, and it's really, really dangerous. In the intelligence community... There is not a single intelligence analyst that you could run across that doesn't know exactly what confirmation bias means. They can describe it for you inside and out. They can describe the specific techniques they use to try to avoid falling into this and try to look for uh, uh, evidence to the contrary of what their conclusion is. Uh, We see this in the scientific community. uh, And... uh, in the scientific community, there is a risk of a researcher, a scientist, a uh, whomever, gathering all this information that supports his or her side of whatever conclusion they want to arrive at or that they already believe is true, and disregarding or minimizing or maybe not even looking for anything that disagrees with whatever they believe. Yeah, and there's a case in point, and I love this guy, and I, I'm going to say his name, and I don't mean to trash him because I've, I've read his books and I like his stuff, Dr. Spencer Wells. And, um, you know, he was a big proponent of the uh, theory of human evolution that was the out-of-Africa theory. And he would make, I, I've seen him lecture at universities before, and like I said, I, I love the guy. But I would hear him say things that 
as a scientist, should make you, a uh, fellow scientist, cringe. Like he'd say, oh, these uh, cave paintings in France were done by my ancestors. You know, they had R1B as their male haplotype. I'm like, how the hell do you know that? That's supported by not a single shred of evidence, whether they were R, whether the men, if they were men that made those cave paintings, had R1B DNA. We absolutely have no idea. And then he would take the evidence that we made it with Neanderthals and say, well, that was just, you know, that was an isolated event. And now, as we know, all non-Africans have some Neanderthal DNA. So, I mean, but he would at first for years would dismiss all this stuff because it did not favor his blonde hair, blue eyed hypothesis. Well, so there is, um, I, I don't, do you know who uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins is? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, he I, wrote I, The Selfish Gene, right? He, yeah, he did write The Selfish Gene. He's written a bunch of books. I think he's probably most famous uh, for his, he's kind of the leader of, of, of what's been described as the new atheist movement. And in one of his books, I, I don't, I've read several of his books. I don't remember which one it was, but he related the story that occurred, I believe, at the uh, Royal Academy of the Sciences in London. I, I, I don't quote me on that, but at the Royal Academy, there was this famed scientist that was working on something and he had dedicated his whole life to this theory and trying to prove it. And uh, this young upstart scientist gets up like at his first meeting at the Royal Academy and presents something that just completely eviscerates this old guy's, uh, this old guy's findings. And the old guy you know, gets up and takes the stage and everybody's like, oh man, what's about to happen? And the old guy says, uh, my boy, you've completely disproven my theory. And, uh, and, but at the same time brought actual knowledge to all of us. And I can, you know, I can think of no greater honor than to be here to actually see the truth on this, you know, whatever it was resolved. And, and I think that's a rarity, man. I think that is a, I think that's what we should all strive to. We shouldn't believe anything too hard in the face of, especially in the face of evidence to the contrary, but we all are more susceptible to confirmation bias than probably any of us care to admit. I I, I think that's extraordinarily rare to be open-minded to the point of, well, you know, Rich, you've said, uh, you've said Glock handguns are the are the heat for 15 years, and here's proof that they suck. And you say, ah, I don't, I don't believe that. I I know what I know, and uh, we're just prone to do that. We're we're prone to kind of dig into our own position, and uh, this this takes some discipline. It actually takes some some practice to to be that way. And and even though I really really try to be that way, sometimes it's still hard, especially on things that I'm kind of emotionally wrapped up in. It is, you know, and, and that's why um, I will hear people that, I, that I'm very close to and that I care about deeply, and they'll, and they'll make a, a broad generalization. I'm like, well, we don't know that. Well, we know this. I'm like, it's one thing. It's not everything. So confirmation bias, it's, it's huge, guys. It's real. Uh, we could probably do a whole show on that alone because I think it's so damn important. But we're gonna we're gonna move on if that's okay with you, Justin. We're gonna talk about projection. Yeah, man. And projection is a theory in psychology in which humans defend themselves against their own unconscious impulses or or uh, qualities, both negative 
or positive by denying their existence in themselves while attributing them to others. So one of the things that I always think about is my mother, God bless her, will say, um, Richie, you must be cold. Do you want a blanket every time I'm around her? And I'm like, you know, she doesn't understand she's cold. She's the one freezing. She's the one that's grabbing a blanket and assuming I'm cold as well. Uh, that's projection. Um, or you must, oh my God, I'm so hungry. You must be starving too. You didn't eat, you haven't eaten since breakfast, have you? And I'm like, no, I haven't eaten since breakfast, but I'm absolutely couldn't eat a bite right now. Yeah. Unfortunately, man, I don't have a great, uh, example of projecting. I, I feel like I should, I, I definitely grasp the concept, but I can't think of a great real life example. I find that amazing, dude. Cause of this shit, this is probably the one that drives me crazy. And, um, you know, one of the things that I see it all the time is, oh, my God, look at, you know, the, the whether it's my wife or my mother, or my brother, any of my friends and family, they will ascribe stuff to their pets. Oh, that, you know, little Fluffy is feeling sad right now because it's raining outside. Like, how the fuck do you know? You know, that dog might be, you know, just loving it because it's raining outside. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, um, I used to get that with my dog. He loved to go out and sit by the grill in the snow. And uh, my lady was like, look at him out there in the snow. Like, how sad? And I'm like, he obviously wants to be out there. He could come in at any time. He All he would have to do is look toward the door and we would open it up and, and let him in. He wants to be there. One of the first, that's a great example. One of the first times I heard of this, or the, one of the first times it came out, I guess, as a theory, was they were trying to figure out why all these World War II war brides and their uh, husbands were getting divorced. So if you imagine during World War II, whether you were a GI in Germany or a GI in Japan, uh, little boys and girls were falling in love with each other and bringing them home back here to the U.S., but they didn't speak the language, neither the GI nor his new wife. So when they got back here, they're in love. Everything's great. He gets her enrolled in an English-speaking class, and then in a matter of six or eight months, once she becomes conversational in English, they find out they freaking hate each other because they've never been able to figure out what the other person really thought. And now that they can communicate, they're like, I don't even know you. What are you talking about? But all this time, they had been projecting <laughs> their own thoughts and feelings onto this other person. And Yeah, minute, I, I can totally see that happening. Yeah, yeah. The first chance that they got to truly communicate, it was like, hey, lady, get the F out of here. Which, yeah, maybe we should be around people that we can't understand their language all the time and just project <laughs> our own stuff onto them. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's so funny. Um, I, I read something recently, this famous guy or someone, he said, man, if I had one wish, you know what it'd be? It would be for my dog to be able to talk to me. And even I am such a victim of projection. I've projected this identity onto my dogs. I don't think I want them to start speaking. I may not like them. I may kick them out of my house. Uh-oh. But projection is something huge, man. It also falls in line with, um, there was a FBI profiler, and he was talking about the RPMs of a sociopath, and that sociopaths would do three things uh, toward their victims. They'll rationalize their own behavior toward the victim. They'll project 
thoughts and feelings into this victim, and then they're going to minimize their own actions on the victim. So projection is real. It's it's it has a darker side to it, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Than the some of the examples that maybe you and I have given today. Yeah, definitely. I feel like we gave kind of low level examples, uh, but yeah, it, it definitely does have a, a bigger, more meaningful effect. So uh, the next one I am very, very interested in, and that is cognitive dissonance. Um, tell me about that one. Yeah, cognitive dissonance is that situation when you have conflicting attitudes. You hold these two separate beliefs in your head or, or, or uh, behaviors, and it's producing stress and, and psychological discomfort by holding these two competing beliefs. You know, um, what's an ex- the only way that you're going to be able to restore some sort of healthy, happy mental balance is you're going to have to let go of one. Like some people, uh, good friends of mine, will use Copenhagen or some form of tobacco, and they'll know that it's destructive, they'll know that it's poison, and yet they still keep doing it. And that will create a cognitive dissonance. They know it causes cancer. They can, you know, they have the mental cognition to, to make that, but they still can't stop from doing it. So they're experiencing cognitive dissonance. Yeah, that's an awesome example, man. Um, and, and again, this is one where I'm, I'm kind of coming up short to your examples, but I feel like that illustrates this one pretty succinctly pretty well and everyone should should kind of understand that and be able to extrapolate that to all sorts of other things in life you know uh drinking soda and you know eating whatever you want to eat and not working out and not getting good sleep and all, all these things are really really bad for you yet all of us do one or the other of those things uh and and some of us do a lot more than a lot more than just one well, yeah, it could be risky sexual behavior. It could be you thought Donald Trump was a tool while he was running for office, but now he's the president and he's doing a couple of good things. And you're like, man, I can't reconcile that. Or or maybe you were raised a Christian and there are certain things you like about the Christian philosophy of life. But at the same time, you don't really believe some of the other tenets of the faith and you're experiencing some discomfort with that. Just just understand that it's out there. And if you're like, man, I don't know why I just feel uneasy about this, it's because you haven't picked a side yet, man. You're going to have to evaluate the evidence and make some decisions and then move on. Because If not, you're going to keep chewing that over in your head and keep experiencing that uh, mental distress. Yeah, for sure. All right, number five, man. You want to kick us off on this one? Obedience, yeah. This is this is an awesome one. Uh, and th- this is an incredibly powerful cognitive bias that has man, this has had massive impacts in, this has impacted world history on an almost unfathomable, fathomable scale. And I don't know why I can't talk today, but I can't. Um, Boy, I know we have some good examples of this one, but obedience is basically a form of social influence uh, where an individual acts in response to a direct order from another individual. And that is enhanced a little bit if that other individual is exhibiting uh, principles of influence like uh, coming from a position of authority or, or something of that nature. This is greatly enhanced and it becomes much more likely that that whoever is subject to that obedience will respond more positively to it the more authority that person giving the order happens to have. And tell us about some places that we've seen this, Rich. 
Well, obviously, I think the most glaring example that the listener would be familiar with is the Nazis, right? Um, you know, we we saw in the Nuremberg trials, these uh, Nazis were saying, hey, look, man, I'm just following orders. You can't hold me responsible. I'm just one, you know, cog in the machine. I'm just doing what I'm told. Um, when they were killing six million Jews and, and stuff like that. So, and that's exactly, so what, the real research that was done on this, let's give credit where credit is due, is Stanley Milgram. And Milgram had a theory that what we saw in Germany wasn't just something that only the Germans could be guilty of. It had to be something that us humans are hardwired to do. And that is when someone is in a position of authority over us, uh, we will uh, follow their orders. Even though that goes against everything we believe in, we would never do these atrocious things had it not been for this person of status or authority telling us to do it, right? Yep. And Stanley Milgram's experiment, if you're not familiar with that, you should definitely go check that out. Um, basically, electric shock experiment. If you Google Stanley Milgram, you will find an excellent, excellent uh, there's videos of this that still exist. This is exceptionally well documented. Go check that out. Yeah, there's a, a movie out. I think it's called The Experimenter that just came out. I think it's on Netflix right now. You can check it out. And it's uh, it goes into, I mean, it's a feature length movie. And it shows him as a young PhD student uh, conducting these experiments and some of the terrible things that he learns about his fellow Americans. But I won't steal it. Check it out. It'll blow your mind. Another one I would say you could check out that has also had massive uh, uh, ramifications for how we understand this concept is Philip Zimbardo's uh, Stanford Prison Experiment, which extremely famous experiment. If if you think you remember exactly how it went, I, I would challenge you to go back and read some literature on that. Uh, it is absolutely fascinating. You know, and... I'm familiar with that. You know, we studied it in college, but at the same time, I think that he had some biases going in. He did some things to the inmates right out of the gate that kind of dehumanized uh, his sub subjects, and it showed some of his. Yeah. Oh, he he definitely did, and he was involved in yeah. the experiment. He was the warden of the prison, uh, and his girlfriend actually had to pull him out and say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What's going on here? Like, this is getting a little out of hand." Uh, and he freely admits, like, yeah, this, this experiment was incredibly flawed. Uh, I, I was way too close to it, way too involved with it. Um, like, there's no question about that, even from, from the man who conducted it himself. But uh, th- I, to me, that doesn't make it any less interesting at all. No, it, it absolutely doesn't. I think with Milgram, it was cleaner. You know, his results, he got, he's like, well, gosh, they're just so bad. Maybe it's because they're coming to the prestigious university to carry out the experiment. It was like, maybe if we did it in a, in a strip mall, maybe the results would be different if instead of coming in with this guy with all the prestige of the university, maybe if we did it in a strip mall. And, and what he found was the results were the damn same. If somebody in a lab coat tells you to do it because the experiment must go on 80 whatever percent of the time, human beings will do it. So... Yeah, so so that would tell us even if uh, Zimbardo's experiment had have been cleaner, probably the results would have been very very similar. No, that's absolutely correct. So um, these any of these conformity where through the social pressure, whether it's of a group or uh, obedience to authority, 
we see it time and time again. And and uh, Milgram also, once he got into obedience, he also did studies on conformity where he would have a group of actors stand on the street corner and stare at this building and mumble to each other. And guess what happened within a, f- a few moments? There would be a crowd of people standing there lo- staring at a building with nothing going on. Yeah. Or the or the classic, I'm sure you've seen these, the classic elevator experiments where there are five research, there's one person gets on an elevator on the ground floor at the second floor, five research confederates get on and start facing the rear wall of the elevator instead of turning around to face and, the door. Yeah. And by the time that elevator's, yeah, by the time it's up to the 10th floor, that one lone person has turned his or her body around to face the back like everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for conformity, watch, there's another show on Netflix right now called The Push. I believe it's Darren Brown's The Push. It will absolutely blow your mind that this this is alive and well in the 21st century. But enough on that. Unless you got something else, let's talk about the framing effect. Let's do it, man. Um, and it's reminiscent of something that you alluded to earlier. And the framing effect is drawing a different conclusion from the same information depending on how that information is presented. So there's positive framing. Uh, you know, for example, the, this product has been proven effective in 80% of the cases or negative framing. This product has failed in two out of every 10 cases we've ever tried, right? Yep. You're absolutely right. Same exact information, however you want to, it depends on how you want to frame it is how it's going to come across. Yeah. And we, man, we see this in advertising, political campaigns. Uh, you see this, um, oh man, you see this basically the way people present information to their coworkers or to their spouses or to their bosses. Uh, it, it's framing has a massive effect on how that information is taken. And, yeah, another, and I would always I, use this to my benefit and go to my wife and say, uh, Hey, your sister's dead. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I cheated on you. And that would typically soften the blow a little bit. <laughs> that's, that's classic. They always fall for that one. <laughs> Uh, you know, but, uh, like you said, we see it often with advertisers and I will tell you, um, another example of this is the book, how to lie with statistics. I don't know if we've mentioned that on the show before. It's a very thin read. It's maybe a hundred pages if that, um, but you definitely want to check it out so that you understand these, uh, sometimes nefarious forces that are at work on us, you know, whether they're from advertisers or drug manufacturers or political campaigns. But the framing effect is just one example of that. You want to talk about the the next one? Yeah, I love this one, the gambler's fallacy, uh, which is this kind of gets into the, um, this kind of gets into a couple different, uh, it, it ties closely with a couple other different cognitive biases like the sunk cost fallacy and throwing good money after bad. But basically this is, uh, this is the belief that a certain random event becomes more likely based on historical data. So as an example, Rich, if I pulled a quarter out of my pocket and flipped it 15 times in a row and every single time it came up heads, what would you say that next flip is going to be? Well, it's, I mean, Justin, it's obvious. It's got to be tails the next time, right? Well, right. That's what most people would say. Uh, most people would swear it has to be tails. There's no way it can be heads one more time. But the fact of the matter is that next coin flip 
isn't it, it's not carrying any of the weight of that historical information. It doesn't know it's landed on heads 15 times in a row. Each one of those flips exist entirely in a vacuum of their own, like on their own, completely in a silo. Those previous 15 flips haven't affected that next one one bit, right? Yeah, and that's, again, we're putting our own human mind into it and go, man, it's got to be, because our brains are uh, hardwired to look for patterns. We want to think that there's a pattern developing, but like you said, Justin, every one of those flips is its own probability attached to it, and the probability is 50-50. The event is going to be 50-50. It's either going to be a heads or it's going to be tails. It doesn't matter that there was a million head flips before it. It's got to be and, tails. No, it's not. And I, I got to admit, man, if I saw you do that, if I sat here and watched you just flip a coin 15 times and it came up heads every single time, I'd check that quarter, make sure it wasn't a double-headed quarter, and then I'd hand it back to you. And I would, even knowing this, I'd be like, man, it, it, like it does kind of have to be tails sooner or later. Um, but that that's a really tough one for some people to uh, some people to break out of it, and it's called the gambler's fallacy for a reason. Man, this this next one's got to come up, got to land on black or, or yeah. whatever. It's called yeah the Monte Carlo fallacy, the hot hand fallacy, the gambler's gambler's fallacy. Um, it, but it's all the same. Or the skunk. What is it? That's another same thing. What's it called? Uh, I, I I'm not sure, but yeah yeah I got a hot hand. I'm on a roll. Uh, but because like now's think, the time to bet big. Think about it. <clears throat> the reason we're alive today is because our ancestors picked up on patterns. They realized that why is all of a sudden the grain we're picking out of the field growing right here? Oh, it's because where the women are shucking it apart, huh? And they figured out that the seeds were dropping down, and that, that's how we got crop domestication, right? Uh, they picked up on these patterns, and we're able to bend their environment to to themselves. So this is an example where that evolutionary psychology is working against us. Don't fall victim to us. Like you said, because we know it. I mean, it, you know the statistical probability is 50-50, but if you're watching that, it's hard to say, dude, there's got to be a pattern here. You know, there's not, man. Yeah, we are pre-programmed to see patterns where they don't exist. That's why... People are always seeing Elvis on a piece of toast or, or, or whatever. We are hardwired to see patterns. The constellations in the sky, that looks like Orion's belt or whatever. That's just three stars, man. But you're... Uh, th- there's another one. Um, when we see human images is another example. Um, we're... we're predisposed to see a like you said a face in the burn of the toast or whatever but i think it's you can't laugh at it because we all fall victim to that silly stuff all the time uh we sure do actually as a matter of fact i was sitting in the yard a little earlier today uh watching the dog play and just kind of spacing out and i looked up at one of the trees uh, across the across the gulch there and just the, there was an opening in the leaves with one branch jutting out into the open. And my eyes kind of, uh, I don't know, I wasn't focused on that. It was just kind of blurry. 
and I had to look up because it started to look like a face. And we like we are hardwired to see faces, to see patterns. And that's bad because we frequently see them where they just don't exist. And we make decisions based off that. Paraduly is what I'm seeing, uh, the, the actual word for that psychological phenomenon. And I'm sure I'm butchering the name of it. But um, anyway, let's talk about number eight, hostile attribution bias. And that is the tendency to interpret others' behaviors as having some sort of hostile intent, even when their behavior is ambiguous or benign at best. So the example that I would give the listener is, I've got a son that I love, but if he sees two people laughing, he will automatically assume that they're laughing at him, right? He's interpreting that that innocuous behavior of two people that he don't know who they are as having some hostile uh, intent toward him. Have you ever seen people do this stuff before? Yeah, definitely. Or, hey, those two people over there are whispering. They must be talking about me. Or, yeah, um, there's probably bigger examples, bigger, bigger picture stuff we could look at. But, yeah, the tendency to assume... I think this is how we get into like these stupid fights with our friends and stuff like, oh, well, he hasn't texted me in five days. Uh, he must be mad at me or so, you know, like that sort of. No, thing. that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Um, you know, it could be like I, at work one time we didn't know that there's no assigned parking. Right. But over time, people that show up to work early would start parking in these certain spots. Well, this new guy started parking in this guy who'd been there for a while, this other Marine who'd been there for a while, and and he just went quiet. We didn't know why he was being quiet. And it turns out finally when we're like, dude, what's your problem? We had to sit him down. Why are you not talking to anybody anymore? Okay, you want to know what's wrong? Gunny so-and-so took my parking space. I'm like, what are you talking about? So, you know, that was a big deal to him. And he thought he was being slighted and that the guy did it on purpose. And we're like, holy crap, dude, let's go out here. And then we put, you know, the senior Marines then started getting their own little parking assignment and the the problem was squash. But people could take little things like that that meant nothing. And this was when you worked at a daycare, right? No, this was in the Marine Corps. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the Marine Corps got some serious egos in there and everybody's fragile and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I call the phenomenon of, uh, fragile masculinity. And I, I can't take credit for that term. That's a very like awesome, awesome woman that I work with that, uh, was like, yep. Fragile masculinity happening, happening right now. People that need to, uh, basically need to constantly be validated because probably in the case that I'm thinking of, they've never actually done anything. Yep. That's absolutely right. So a hostile attribution bias is there. If someone didn't call you, didn't return your text, they probably still love you like they did 10 minutes ago, man. Just don't attribute something that ain't there. Relax. <laughs> so let's talk about irrational escalation. Tell me about that. Um, it's, it's the phenomenon where people justify increased investment in a decision based on some prior investments that they've made. Uh, Despite new evidence suggesting that the initial decision was wrong, they're going to keep going down that road because they've already, they think, well, I've I've gone too far at this point. So example might be, once you started buying Enron stock as it was booming, 
even though Newsweek does an article or something comes out and says, hey, you know, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. We've looked into this and it turns out it's probably bad. Some people will not pull their money out because they feel like, well, I've already made such a big investment here. I can't back out now or maybe I, or, or to do that would mean that my initial decision was wrong. I can't be wrong, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, like back to back to the political thing. Gun owners are are a big community with with this. Um, I'd say predominantly voted for President Trump, and even though President Trump has gone on TV and said, "Let's take people's guns away," uh, since he's been president, let's take people's guns away first. Worry about due process second. Uh, still, they they even though that seems to be the one thing that gun owners would hang anybody else out to dry for, they're still fully behind him. Uh, which which kind of blows my mind a little bit, but it's that um, escalation of commitment fallacy, irrational escalation. But yeah, I've been uh, like to to change my position now would be to admit that I was wrong, and I'm not going to admit that. Yeah, and I when I think about this, I think of uh, that excellent book, um, gosh, Into the Void, maybe by John Krakauer. Oh, Into the Wild. No, he, he wrote. Oh, um, the one about climbing Mount Everest into into thin into, air. Into thin air, yeah. Where you've come so far, the peak is right there. I mean, we're we're a couple hundred yards. If we just keep pushing, and it's hard not to do that. I'll give you a, a personal story. Um, me and two good friends of mine, we were climbing the Sphinx in Montana, and we never intended to climb the Sphinx. We just wanted to get out, stretch our legs, and go on a, a little hike. And the intent was, we'll go about a mile or two, and then we'll turn around. So each one of us only carried a bottle of water and maybe a protein bar. And we keep going, and we keep going, and we keep going. And we're like, wow, the dude, we're, we're going to end up climbing the Sphinx. I mean, heck, it's right there. You can see the summit. And then the weather started turning bad. And then it gets down to like 30 degrees, and we're wearing thin T-shirts. But we're like, man, the summit's right there. It's it's calling our name and I, and I finally I said look I am not going any further we're six miles in we've got to go six miles out we still got another mile up to the top of the peak and back down the weather's turning south none of us have the means of making a fire none of us have even a windbreaker to get this wind off of us this is how people die you know they feel like well we can't turn around we've come this far we just got to keep pushing right so we just gave and I think accidentally, we didn't plan this out. We just gave three completely different examples. One financial commitment, one ideological or emotional commitment, and one physical commitment to a task. And I think that's important to take away from this. These cognitive biases aren't just, the, the gambler's fallacy doesn't just apply when you're sitting in the casino. The gambler's fallacy applies when you're making decisions based on the evidence that you've observed or whatever. If you're not looking at it with a critical eye, it can have big impacts in your real life. And, and same thing with all of these to include uh, actually getting yourself, you know, uh, finding yourself in some freak snowstorm on a mountain in, in Wyoming or wherever without the means to deal with that because you ignored the signs uh, and you said, hey, we're, we're already here. We're going all the way. Uh, I, I think, again, we didn't plan this. I think that's three awesome examples of how this applies across multiple facets of your life and how knowing about these can potentially save your life. Yeah, I would totally agree with that, man. And it was hard for us to turn around, of course, once we got back into town 
and we're having a burger and a beer. Everybody's like, man, that was the right thing to do because, you know, it, the weather did turn really bad on us. And and um, that one of my hiking partners that day is a good friend of mine out in Montana who became famous for getting mauled by a bear twice. Check him out at thetoddor.com. But Todd was my hiking partner that day, and a year later he would be uh, seriously injured by getting up, attacked by a um, huge grizzly bear in that same vicinity we were hiking in. So not only did we have the weather to contend with, we were all alone. That's true. We were three armed, highly capable men. Um, but still, the further you go in, there's nobody coming to your rescue, man. We had no cell signal. We had nothing. We were on our own and, and inadequately prepared. But there was a tendency there that macho irrational escalation you know three dudes nobody wanted to say nobody wanted to be the the one that says you know what let's tap out let's move back and finally i let me let me let me tell you man even on a short little uh day hike in a in a small state park or something like that i don't get out of the car without a couple of quarts of water a first aid kit uh, a, a knife and the ability to start a fire man it's it's too easy to carry that stuff and and the consequences are potentially fatal if you don't have those things. True. So our 10th one, let's talk about the, uh, I'll let you take this one. Uh, illusory superiority. I have a lot of thoughts on this one, the Dunning-Kruger effect. And maybe, Rich, you and I are falling uh, victim to this somewhat. But this is a cognitive bias where people with a minimal level of skill, uh, uh, let's use handguns as an example, because you and I both know quite a bit about that. But basically somebody that, uh, let's say, buys a handgun, goes to, uh, you know, like a two-day training. And you and I have both been training for, I would say, probably 15, 20 years. Uh, in my case, probably much more than that in your case. Uh, so a, a two-day handgun course is, is not that much. It's an awesome start but it's not where you want to finish at. Uh, so someone takes a couple days of training and then because they know so little about it, they think they know everything about it. Basically the less you know about something, uh, the more likely you are to think, you know, everything there is to know about it. Whereas I think you and I both are to the point now, uh, you and I just went to a, a training course together and both of us were like, yeah, man, I'm here to learn anything I possibly, any little tidbit I can possibly get out of this. Uh, whereas that guy who's victim of the Dunning-Kruger effect would say, uh, yeah, I'm probably not going to learn too much from this because I already kind of, I already kind of have this down. A am I on the right track there? <sighs> yeah, I'm cracking up because you are on the right track. And that's exactly right. You know, it's, um, this derives from the inability of low ability people to recognize their own ineptitude. So without that self-aware, uh, that metacognition, you know, the awareness and understanding of your own thought processes, without that, they cannot objectively evaluate their own competence or incompetence. Now, the, the, conversely, what's interesting about the Dunning-Kruger effect is highly competent individuals may erroneously assume that this task is easy for them and it's easy for everyone, right? Um, because they, uh, they just assume everyone is at the same place that they are. And that's just not the case. Right. So, so Dunning-Kruger is kind of an inability or, uh, maybe not an inability, but for whatever reason, you have not recognized and acknowledged your unknowns. So all your unknowns are unknown to you. You don't know what you don't know. And 
without that, you, you haven't progressed to the point where you realize, oh, wait, uh, I'm just in this first little uh, foyer of this huge warehouse of information. I, I haven't even gotten to that door to see that, oh, yeah, there's all this stuff back here that I need to learn. And the the place where I saw this play out most in my life, long before I knew what the Dunning-Kruger effect was, was when I was a rec- canvassing recruiter for the Marine Corps, I would take a young man or a young woman to take the ASVAB, which is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Test. It's like the ACT to join the Marine Corps, okay? So I would take these guys and gals to take the ASVAB, and if they were kind of, I knew they were going to be close on the test, but they would come out of the test after, the test I think can run for as long as three hours. They would come out after an hour going, man, I think I would crushed it. Really? You think you crushed it? And immediately, my experience would tell me that the kid bombed it. And when I'd ask him later, I said, well, you said you crushed it. How did you do on the, I know you're, you struggle in algebra in high school. How do you think you did in the algebra in there? They're like, oh, well, most of that stuff was, I mean, nobody can answer it, right? I mean, those don't have answers, right? So I just put down whatever. I'm like, no, dummy. They do have answers. <laughs> you know, you're just so... And I hate to say this, you're just so dumb, you can't recognize how dumb you are. And the smart guys would come out the, the opposite. If I would given this person the sample test in my office, and it would, it would tell me the kid's going to really ace this test, they would come out, they would use up the whole amount of time. At the end of three hours, they'd come out shaking their head going, man, I, I, don't, I don't know, that, that, that test was tough. And I knew that kid did well. And sure enough, the scores would come back, and he did He did do well, but he thinks it's incredibly hard for everybody. All right, Rich, we have covered a heck of a lot of ground here, and we've we've talked about all of these, and we haven't, uh, maybe some of these have run together for the listener. So before we go on, let's go ahead and recap just very, very briefly. Uh, I'm going to throw this in your court. Very, very briefly recap these cognitive biases that we talked about. Sure. So the first one. Foot in the door, that's where agreeing to the small request will increase the likelihood of agreeing to a second bigger request, which is what they wanted to do to you in the first place. Uh, door in the face, which is kind of like that, where you, they want you to refuse the big request they make up front because they know you're more likely to agree to the second smaller request, right? The second one we talked about was confirmation bias. That's the, in, that's the tendency of people to interpret Uh, new evidence as confirming something that they already believe. So it just feeds right into what they wanted. Uh, See, we talked about number three was projection. And that's where people will project their own conscious or unconscious impulses onto something maybe that is an inanimate object, right? Oh, my God, my bicycle, it's freezing outside. No, no, dummy, you're freezing. Anyway, uh, then we got cognitive dissonance where uh, that's the situation where you have conflicting attitudes or beliefs and you have this mental anguish and stress because you're holding those two beliefs. We talked about obedience, right? Number five, which is that form of social influence that individuals that hold a direct position of authority over us, they can make us do things that we would normally never do only because of their hierarchy of power. Uh, We talked about the framing effect, number six, and that's where you draw different conclusions based on how the information was presented to you in the first place. You know, uh, number seven, man, we talked about the gambler's fallacy, hot hand, whatever you want to call it, where you believe that 
there's some sort of pattern of events occurring, even though there's no pattern at all. These are all random singular events where the probability is certain and that has no impact on future outcomes. So eight, we talked about the hostile attribution bias, where we have a tendency to interpret the behaviors of others as having some sort of hostile intent against us, even though their behavior was just benign. Like the example you gave, somebody whispering over in a corner. Let's see, we talked about number nine was um, irrational escalation, where people will, they want to justify their initial investment, right? I, I, I I must have made a good a good choice back then, so I'm just going to keep piling on and, and getting worse and worse and worse, even though they should probably get out of it. And the final one we just talked about, illusory superiority or the Dunning-Kruger effect, it's that cognitive bias where people of low ability mistake their own ability than greater than it is or the converse of that, and that highly competent individuals will think that they suck when they do not. So those are the 10 biases we talked about today yeah and if you're if you're counting that was actually 11 that's because the door in the face and the foot in the door we we kind of shoved into one and i'll also point out we talked about the self-serving bias at the top so that's actually 12 so you guys are getting uh uh some bonus cognitive biases out of this one we should charge extra for this man we should i think i think we'll charge 20 percent more (laughs) there you go Uh, uh, that's all I had, man. Uh, what do you got? Uh, I'm all good, man. Uh, let's talk about the book of the week though. Okay. Book of the week. I think let's make, um, let's make the one I was talking about earlier, uh, how to lie with statistics. Have you read that? I have not. Well, you need to, man. We, I had to read it in stats class in college and, um, I was really shocked that that was on the reading list and it's written by, uh, the author is Irving I'm going to have to spell his name, G-E-I-S, and Daryl Huff. Got two authors, and it is an amazing small book. Uh, it's, gosh, let's see when it was when it came out. It's been around, it was first published in 1954. I had no idea it had been around that long. But one of the examples it gives uh, is like a real estate agent would say, well, the average home price in this area is $150,000. And you would think, okay, cool. But what do you mean when you say average? And the actually, there's in statistics, there's three ways to have an average. The mean, the median, and the mode, right? You familiar with those? Yep. So uh, the mean would be, you know, you add them all together, and then you divide that by the number that you added, right? So if there's 10 homes that are 100000 a piece, you add up that, it's a million divided by 10, the average home price is $100,000. The median is you take a list of those 10 home prices and you pick out the one that's right in the center and you arrange them from the most expensive to the least expensive and you grab the center one and that becomes the median. Or there's the mode, it's the price that occurs most often. So when you hear that real estate agent say it's the average price, which one are they talking about? You can also look at it like when I would do stats in the Marine Corps, I was definitely guilty of this. I, I had Rich Brown's internal bias, and I would use different colors for charts if I wanted to place that in a negative light. I might I might take off. I mean, this is some intellectual dishonesty, but fuck it. I would take the, if it didn't make the graph look as big, then I would have the graph start at 10 instead of zero and stuff like that so that the swings would look more, look bigger than they actually were. So 
and the book discusses all these. And he doesn't tell, he's not telling you how to lie with him as much as he's letting you know that uh, you can be misled by statistics. I like it, man. I like that a lot. I am definitely going to add that to my reading list. Well, yeah, you should, because a lot of us want to think, well, it's math, right? It's two plus two equals four, you know, but it's about how you present that information, especially if you're presenting information that someone is going to have to make a decision based on. And that's... Would you call that uh, how you frame that information? Hey, look at that. The framing effect. That's absolutely right. Thanks for tying it back, Justin. Yeah, you bet, Rich. No problem. Guys, ladies, children, whoever you are out there in podcast land, please go to acrossthepeak.com. Check us out there. If you haven't subscribed to the show, please subscribe. And remember, stay safe. And if you can't stay safe, stay dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.